0: Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on an of Shabbos. Mr. Honlein, welcome back to JM in the AM.
1: Thank you. It's good to be with you as so always.
0: So I mentioned Dr. Rick Hodes off the air to you. Tell our listeners the story you started to tell me.
1: Yes, well, I was in the White House and uh, uh, several years ago, and the uh, Vice President, Al Gore... Uh, was at the meeting, and we finished about a very serious issue, which I recall, and he said to me, you you have to stay behind. I said, why? He said, because Tipper, his then wife, uh, has been waiting for you to come, and just give me a minute and she will come over. And we sat there for 15 minutes or so, and finally Mrs. Gore showed up, and she brought a picture, and it showed Rick Hodes (laughs) with his yarmulke in a sea of black people Treating, and he had his hands at treating uh, one young person. Uh, it, it was in Rwanda after the massacres, and the there was literally one person there treating uh, these victims. And she said when she saw it and saw his yarmulke, it reminded her. I mean, she thought that this is something that she would that. Uh, I would especially appreciate and it, it is, and the picture hangs in my office, and so many people but to to see what he did and he, i mean he 's truly a hero
0: oh unbelievable, and uh, oh, he, he proudly says he 's responsible for one percent of the citizens of Israel because if you calculate the number of uh, Ethiopian Jews he assisted either directly or indirectly to get from ethiopia to israel that's that 's that's just one of his accomplishments, um, but I must say that the uh, uh, that the um you know i grew up in a household that was at the same time very praiseworthy and often critical of jewish organizational life i'm sure you know what i mean by that and uh, sometimes I've in about it. yeah and sometimes in intense conversations about the same and yesterday gave me an opportunity and really reading the book about him gave me an opportunity To see how the Joint Distribution Committee, who again, you know, often praised and sometimes criticized, like any Jewish organization, um, has made such an amazing effort to help Jews and non-Jews in Africa and the importance, as he pointed out yesterday, of doing both and having this ambassador like himself to do the work. And I just thought it was a good opportunity to remind everybody that with all the cynicism out there, there's a lot of great work being done with the funds that people donate to different Jewish causes.
1: I had the privilege to speak last Sunday for the uh, JDC, the Joint Distribution Committee's uh, meeting, and uh, the, the truth is that they do remarkable work. We partner with them all over the world. We do the political stuff. They're the ones on the ground working behind the scenes, often quietly doing such remarkable things, providing food. They're not... Some people, some organizations, some efforts uh, spend all their money on publicizing very little activities. They do very little publicity but have great activities, in the community can be proud of what is done, and, and often by people going around the world um, and accomplishing so much. You remember Charles Jordan, who was right. the head of the JDC, was murdered right. in Czechoslovakia, I think, for working behind the Iron Curtain to save Jews.
0: Unbelievable. Uh, every, I, we want to get to the news. I, I just don't want to forget. Uh, that on the 31st of May is the parade, everybody. We spoke extensively about it next week, uh, last week. I'm not going to bother Malcolm again about it today, but I just want to remind everybody how important, with the three-day coming up, a good opportunity to remind family and friends how important it is a week from Sunday to be on Fifth Avenue for the Celebrate Israel Parade. Another coincidence, well, I don't know about another, but a coincidence of the calendar, uh, Malcolm, and what a wonderful gesture from the Jewish organizations that promoted this. Uh, Monday is Memorial Day, Monday is also Yisker, and they're using the opportunity to recognize those jewish um, uh, uh, members of the armed forces who have fallen in defense of freedom for the united states of america over all these centuries
1: yeah, remembering jews and non-jews who who made our lives possible yeah. remember those who died in the defense of israel there's yom Zippurum, but uh, this is another opportunity and you know it's it's one of the myths that has been created that jews don't fight and in fact jews fought in world war ii disproportionately way disproportionate to their numbers and and the, and many hundreds of thousands of Jews fought in, you know, on, in the Russian side on the American side uh, he, he fought in the European armies and the numbers are quite astounding that uh, you know the, and in subsequent wars as well and uh, and the death of uh, the young man from Long Island right. uh, Rockaway Park on on the train accident but I, I met with uh, Admiral Mullen was was here just those days. He was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, And he started talking about, he said, as soon as I saw it, I knew it was a young Jewish boy. He said, we may not have that many, but they're such wonderful cadets. They're such wonderful people.
0: Unbelievable. And I'll tell you that you, you, it just struck me what you said, because if you go into any older Jewish community, you know the ones where you know the, the, where there have been Jewish communities and Jewish presences for the last hundred to 120 years in that area. You'll find memorials, and in some cases, you'll find living people who were there in World War II. And now that I think about it, of course, you're right. We have such a small population; sometimes we forget that. that obviously, if you just have a few from each community, you're talking about a disproportionate number that fought during the Great War, yeah, They
1: fought during the Great War, and, and subsequently.
0: Yeah, of course. Vietnam, elsewhere too. Uh, very important because that's such a uh, such an an item that's always brought up by those who uh, can't stand the Jewish people or Israel. Um, the the death uh, of uh, Rabbi Levinger, Gush Emunim, Chevron, Jewish hero, uh, obviously somebody who made waves and you know and uh, and had and had interesting methods to uh, get the publicity necessary to make change, but. You look back at his life, Malcolm, and no matter what political position you have, even the New York Times had some praise for him, I saw, in the obituary. You have to admit somebody who uh, was a pioneer when it came to uh, Jewish tradition and Jewish history.
1: And and a happenstance uh, pioneer Was somebody I don't think he set out to be a hero or to to ta- take the kind of courageous stands uh, that he did, but I think he was visiting in Hebron and then made the decision that Jews had to be there, that this was the gateway to Yerushalayim and that the... The historical connection as the first capital of the Jewish people, uh, his activities were Lishma, totally l'shma, to to save the city and those who agree or disagree with him i can not don 't think anybody can
0: say he didn 't make a difference uh, no question about it uh, before we get to some of the bigger, not bigger, more important but meaning more global issues, another terror ramming. In Jerusalem this week, and I, you know, I, I, I know it must be frustrating to you whenever I turn to you with frustration about, you know, what Israel and its police forces uh, and anti-terror forces can possibly do about this. Anything additional to add now that another incident has occurred this week?
1: Well, there may have been more than one actually in the, over the last week, but the, uh, you know, the, it, it's something you can hardly uh, act against. That you can't predict it. There's no way to build a barrier to it because you didn't need barriers at every corner, you'd need barriers at every street light. So there has to be the the intelligence and the uh, effort. And I think holding those who do such acts to account in such a way that it would be a deterrent, meaning that they get such heavy prison terms and that they pay the price, the families uh, have some consequence. That's, that's the only way to stop. This can be limitless and... Uh, you know, people try to dismiss some of these acts. It could be a traffic accident, etc., when, in fact, this is very deliberate. And this mm-hmm. tactic, they think, uh, gives them some sense, some diminution of the seriousness as opposed to an all-out terrorist attack. This is all-out terrorism.
0: That's so true. It's not because it's not a grenade. It's not a bus bombing. It's a, it's, 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 it's a more subtle type, I guess one would call it, although I don't think a victim would think so. But it's a more subtle type of terror attack, certainly in the way it's reported. And that might be a better tactic, actually. Not to give the enemy too many ideas, frankly. Um, in a far-reaching, as it's described, interview published Thursday um, by Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, President Obama says, I care so deeply about the state of Israel, precisely because I care so much about the Jewish people, I feel obliged to speak honestly and truthfully about what I think will be most likely to lead to a long-term security and will best position us to continue to combat anti-Semitism. I make make no apologies for that, precisely because I'm secure and confident about how deeply I care about Israel and the Jewish people. The way this is being painted is is that he's criticizing Israel because he cares about Israel so much. I don't need you to play psychologist, although I'd love for you to do so in reaction to this. What do you think is going through the president's mind as he says this?
1: Well, I haven't read the full article. I read parts of it, and, uh, but because I, I put it aside to, to read the, today, uh, it, it requires a lot of careful scrutiny because he draws a lot of connections, which frankly don't on the surface necessary uh, figure. Um, and his, his analysis of anti-Semitism, I think, does not necessarily pass the test of history. <laughs> uh, but you can see that he, and, and, and we saw it when we met with him a few weeks ago, that he's deeply offended and, and takes very personally the comments made about him, the, in, in, the hints at anti-Semitism or being anti-Israel, uh, and clearly he has decided that he's throwing down the gauntlet to, to the prime minister to others to, to attack some of the some precepts that I think have been accepted for a long time, that uh, he, he is uh, also signaling what I think we can expect for the next 600 days of his administration.
0: He says, and I quote, Look, 20 years from now I'm still going to be around, God willing. If Iran has a nuclear weapon, it's my name on it. I think it's fair to say that in addition to our profound national security interests, I have a personal interest in locking this down. For somebody who has a personal interest in locking this down, you'd think he would be behaving and negotiating a bit differently.
1: Well, I think if we look just at the developments on two fronts of the last uh, uh, few days, we see that the Iranians are moving ahead in Iraq. They're moving ahead... In Yemen, we, you know, they challenged the Western, uh, uh, the American blockade and the that of the Saudis and the others uh, of of their ships coming in because they were resupplying weapons, and now they have the ship that went to Djibouti, and we'll have to see what was on board it. I think they probably would run that ship clean in order to bring in other ships that are not clean, but we know that they continue to resupply them to resupply Hezbollah and Hamas and to continue their terrorist activities. But if you look in that article also, you'll see a figure there that I think is quite astounding, and that is he talks about the release of $150 billion. We originally talked about $30 billion, then $50 billion, yeah. then, then somebody into the $100 billion, but nobody has ever said $150 billion in potential relief that uh, Iran would get on signing a deal none of which would be subject to the limitations on the sanctions. And uh, that amount of money will so dramatically change things, because it's not money that will go to the benefit, as he indicates, that Rouhani and others would use it for the people. None of that will go to the people. The money will go to fostering the the goals of Khamenei. And if you saw Khamenei's statements this week, not only does he again attack America and say that America is the enemy of... uh, of the of the United of Sunnis and Shiites and uh, proceeds to to denigrate uh, America in in every possible way. The uh, the statements that were made, if you look at Zarif's testimony to the Majlis, to the parliament, and they rejected what he said to the Security and Foreign Policy Committee, refused his uh, presentation, and he. Didn't want to, he wouldn't release a fact sheet to them about what's going on, and just as the Congress hasn't seen a real fact sheet of, of what the deal is. And everybody seems to be hiding behind things, and their interpretation still remains at odds with what uh, was said here. And uh, they say that it'll take a year to get the, the banking sector going and that the, the business things will take a long time to ramp up, but that money will be there, and once it's released, you know, it's spongable. It can go in any direction. There's no way that you you can uh, prevent uh, the, uh, or determine where that money is going to go. So we continue to see, on the one hand, these vicious comments, and then they announce that they're not going to accept the idea of inspection except with 24 days' notice. Now, anybody who looks at that and says 24 days' notice is enough to move the whatever – base they have let alone cover up whatever is going on there and foreign minister fabius of uh, of, of france made it very clear and he said you know that's essentially saying it's ridiculous how can you have 24 days notice there'll be nothing there when uh you know when when the, they come the inspectors come and it was supposed to be anywhere anytime there was supposed to be snap inspections meaning uh, without announcement because that's the only way that that could be effective
0: who proposed the 24 days the Iranians, right? But it was at Khamenei or um, actually all of them said it but, because but, he also had uh, made Harif a said it because I think Khamenei this week had made a statement that there would be uh, that, that he would be he against said
1: no inspection right. of military sites right no uh, unannounced inspections we're not letting he said if anybody goes on a military bases they'll get shot all
0: right so that was his. Uh, uh, regulation or his uh, a piece of negotiation, and other Iranian officials said that need they need twenty four days' notice in order for any inspection to take place and I
1: thought it was interesting to see uh, that not only does he say that the the um, a- attacked the United States uh, over and over again, and he ruled out interviews with the nuclear scientists, which is one of the essential parts to to uh, um, and making this effective, and, and they refused the inspections uh, in Yemen. They, I mean, every single thing is a negative action, and yet we go on as if all of this is insignificant, nothing happened. Yeah. The uh, United States ignored, it turns out, the Israeli warnings for months, three months ago, that the aircraft sale that took place, that uh, violated sanctions now, supposedly we're going to sanction the airlines that participated in this deal, which resulted in 15 used commercial planes uh, coming to to Iran and they'll be refitted and outfitted and uh, the, the Israelis had flagged this issue long before, but they went they didn't do anything to stop the deal it went ahead and now we face another Fed company what what was interesting is to see former defense secretary Gates uh, Robert Gates's statements about... Um, uh, talking about some of the, the principles are unrealistic and given their, their meddling in the region, their revolutionary principles, he said, I don't think the, the alternative is war. One alternative is a better deal. You reinforce the sanctions. You basically say, here are the additional things we need for this agreement to work and be worthwhile. That reassures our allies or at least doesn't scare them half to death. And if they choose not to come back to negotiations but race to a new Iraq, uh, weapon, My guess is that they will show that they intended to do that all along.
0: Hmm. Get him to be part of the negotiating team. Right. (laughs) He's not not that welcome there. It's amazing what people say when they're out of office. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Reminder for our New Jersey listeners on Wednesday night, 8 p.m., Teach NJS, the partnership of the New Jersey Jewish Community and the Orthodox Union Advocacy Center. They have their kickoff event uh, in Bergen County at Congregation Renat Yisrael. It's 8 o'clock this coming Wednesday night, 389 West Englewood Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey. We're highly recommending that all New Jerseyans be there for that very Important meeting. Um, the uh, how unfair is this on the subject of the uh, president of the United States and his and his uh, assessment of why he speaks the way he does about Israel uh, now? Because the new Netanyahu government has officially been sworn in, uh, the president of the United States says a big overreaching deal with the Palestinians is probably impossible in the near term. He says a peace accord, a prospect of a peace accord, quote, seems distant now noting that a number of members of the new Israeli government did not want a Palestinian state. I mean, how harmful is this to any real potential negotiation that he puts all the blame on Israel when when the other side certainly deserves at least a percentage of the blame of not getting to the table?
1: It's not only a percentage. People forget that a year ago, the White House uh, reached out to both the Israelis and the Palestinians, gave them uh, a document which turns out not to have been the same document to each side, <coughs> and especially on the issue of Yerushalayim there were differences. Uh, but the Israelis responded, and the Palestinians till today have not responded. Yet you do not see the kind of harsh reaction or statements or, you know, um, uh, uh, isolation of, of uh, Abbas because consistently he has walked away from every deal. Uh, I do think that the personal aspects of, of the relationship between the president and Netanyahu are playing out. This is very unfortunate. The relationship I mean, chemistry is always important between the individual leaders, but the, I don't think that's something that's going to be rectified. But the, the fact that it translates and, and morphs into the policy decisions, and to put the onus so so much and to keep playing on the fact that what Netanyahu said uh, during the heated campaign, even though he's gone to such great lengths, including again this week, uh, meeting with the Arab members, meeting with, uh, reiterating his commitment to a two-state solution, and yet the president seems uh, to be unwilling to, to let that go and, and keeps harping on his aspiration. He does say, and he has said it to, to us, that he, he knows there won't be a Palestinian state in his, during his term, that it's not enough time but I think he wants to create all the predicates for it.
0: Yeah. All right, everybody's anxious to hear what you could tell us about Palmyra and the United States policy now with ISIS, which is being criticized up and down. Let's start first with what's going on in Syria. Why is this so significant, this ISIS uh, invasion? And, And what's the current state of affairs in Syria in terms of the Syrian government, how they're dealing with ISIS?
1: Well, despite all the assertions about how victorious the uh, Syrian forces were or the rebel forces, the fact is that ISIS today controls just about half of Syria. They just took control of the last border crossing uh, in Homs province between Syria and Iraq. Uh, They uh, have had a number of military victories, including in Palmyra, and people think Palmyra is important because of the ruins there, UNESCO site, it's historic ruins, uh, thousands of years old, uh, very uh, beautiful and and significant, and many uh, ancient sites and resources there that are being destroyed and have been destroyed all along by ISIS there, Iraq, and everywhere else, because they believe that this is uh, uh, idol worship, uh, I guess is the way to put it. Uh, But Palmyra is a city of 200,000 people. More than 70,000 have fled, meaning 70,000 more refugees. Many people were killed in the fighting. But they took over another major city. So Assad does not have control of the other 50%. He has control of less than 20% today of Syria when you take the areas that the rebels and other groups control.
0: Assad is down to 20% of Syria.
1: Right. But wow. it always was that if he could keep control of Damascus and of a significant part of Aleppo, that he could stay in power. They are uh, moving all the time. And then the same thing is true in Iraq. They're moving on Baghdad. And this, with the American bombing, with the presence of the, the Iranians, I think the Iranians will do everything possible to keep them out of there. But the uh, uh, there are some times that people believe Iran is using the ISIS victories to gain a foothold. In other words, they let ISIS go in. That gives them an excuse to in their troops and their front groups their militias the Afghani fighters that they brought in other fighters from all over to to uh, serve their purpose to get a, an additional foothold in more and more of Iraq because they want to take it over and the uh, you know the two countries are today both Syria and Iraq after all the uh, you know boasting about uh, victories or they say you know we've had slight setbacks we haven't had slight setbacks we've had major setbacks mm-hmm. in in um, in both situations and the uh, you know the the ramifications can be many for us about what the changes in the region will be but if you also see that the that the u.s. is stepping up the warnings about terrorism here both referring to the 22 thousand foreign fighters who are there they claim that 180 Americans have gone I think the number is probably higher and uh, but they say that that hundreds maybe thousands of Americans uh, are, are seeing recruitment pitches from Islamic State on social media, and they come on saying, kill, kill, kill. And this is from the head of the FBI, not me, who has been worrying about this for a long time, and people, you know, say, oh, it's depressing to hear all these things. No, oh, this is the reality we got to face, and the, the you know, people can feel good that if Assad is toppled, but you got to think about what's going to be the day after, what's going to replace it, and the chutzpah of Iran, the, the way they challenge us, whether... It is in Yemen or whether it is in Iraq or in Syria. And the fact that the other Arab countries look at it and say that we essentially, the United States, is turning it over to Iran. Mm-hmm. That we brought them in. That we're, we're giving them the opportunity to, to gain more and more control. And we will regret it.
0: So the Something
1: si- will come back to
0: home. So does Syria go into the ISIS column? You know, if we, like on election night where they award a state, you know, to the Democrats or Republicans eventually, like, how many countries at this point, you know, would you paint with the ISIS color? I guess it would be black, with the ISIS black flag. How many at this point do they essentially control?
1: Well, they don't control whole countries yet, but they certainly are uh, uh, in the, on the verge in Syria of gaining the upper hand, the... Um, uh, they are certainly very uh, successful in Iraq and have increased the, their thing. And they may not be looking to take over the countries as a whole, though ultimately they would like to. But even if they can, as they do today, control huge swaths of both countries that will remain theirs and under their control. And when you, when if Syria is divided between Sunni and shiite it'll also be divided with Kurds and and the ISIS group will have uh, its role. But ISIS is now, for instance, now operating in Libya, and they have successfully established themselves, and they want to use it as a jumping-off point into Africa, not just against Egypt and not just uh, in the Sinai and Gaza, but, but primarily against Africa. They're also uh, operating in, um, in, in Libya, and in, in, uh, there's a new group that was created by Iran in Gaza, because they dropped their support of Palestinian Islamic Jihad because they didn't support them and something, I forgot which issue. Uh, But we also see that ISIS continuously tries to gain a a foothold there. So it's not that they control countries, but they're increasingly controlling and and maybe determining the fate
0: of countries. It's funny, I I literally just Googled, you know, with that question, where is ISIS, quote-unquote, on one of those maps that I just envisioned or imagined popped up tremendous presence in iraq as you've described to us especially in the northern portion and it seems in syria as well the northern portion of that country uh not close to the israeli border though at this point you well, agree? would Well,
1: that's only they don't have a heavy presence but they do have a strong presence there they have tried to make encroachments on that because that is going to be the advanced border of iran continuously uh, says so and, uh, the, uh, and ISIS has tried a challenge. It's actually al-Nusra that is in control of much of the border, the Golan border. Uh, but uh, And the uh, IRGC, Iran Revolutionary Guard, together with Hezbollah and Syrian troops tried to challenge them, had some initial victories, were set back. But that is something that we will, will, will come more in the future.
0: All right, so now the big question, and obviously it's been a big news story over the last couple of days, U.S. policy against ISIS. Excuse me, how would you analyze the way the White House is not only reacting but acting in terms of trying to stop ISIS at this point?
1: Well, there has to be a a decision if we go all out and and not look to the Iranians as allies because that's just, you know, changing one devil for another. uh, That there has to be a decision about how we deal with it. We've let them go too long and get away with too much. They continue to recruit. We have to stop all recruitment. Meaning that Turkey has to do more to ban their their access. Uh, in fact, they are allowing weapons into to Syria and for their own purposes of establishing presence. And uh, we have to stop the choke them off from, from support. They and and part of the reason, uh, Nachum, that they need new territory is not because they necessarily want the territory, but that's how they survive. Because when they go into an area like Palmyra, they first take the banks and all the money. They go house by house, uh, you know, taking all the loot all right. the silver and stuff. That's how they survive. And then
0: they need and, more.
1: Uh, and oil, from the sale of oil. So for them, the acquisition of territory is, is as important for it's up to, to sustain its other efforts and its efforts in whatever place they are, because that's how they finance it.
0: Um all right, sorry, are you willing to uh, evaluate the president at this point in terms of uh, of the reaction in terms of i mean i I, I, I mean, we have to
1: we will see what what goes on. It's not just the united states it's the it's the West. We have to see what you know the Arab countries are increasingly taking control of, of themselves. You see what Saudi Arabia did in in Yemen, not with the United States, not forming until later, and then the United States joined. Uh, that effort, rightly, to, to fight them uh, in uh, in Yemen, uh, which is Iran, essentially. the um, it, It's not an easy battle. No one says that these uh, conflicts, because you, you never know who's the... There's no right side in some of these conflicts, and it depends. There's no local resistance. It's not like you have an army you can back. Mm-hmm. You don't want to back Assad's army, and... and the, the regional powers and the, the forces that are at play you have multiple uh, uh, players. Let's say in Syria, have about a hundred, four different rebel groups. Sometimes they work together; sometimes they are at odds with one another. Um, See, I know. But I know people. And the claims that to say that the claims of victories in that areas that we supposedly win it turns out that we've lost
0: them. Mm. I mean, to a degree, I know people aren't going to like that I say something in defense of the president, but it, it's an almost impossible situation to be in. Because no matter what you decide, even if you go in the direction that you know,
1: but either maybe dire- if you go back to when they turned the guns around and the message that that sent—that had we stood our ground when the chemical weapons issue first came up and mm-hmm. we were ready to act—and and the president called off the troops, called off the French uh, planes were on the runways already ready to go—that we we showed that we we sent a message at least that we have no red lines that we back off the West, Michael, it's not just the United States. You know, there's, there's again, no heroes here. You don't see France, you don't see Britain, you don't see anybody else.
0: Well, there was one country that was proactive at that time, although I don't know if they'd admit it, but Israel certainly, at least according to the sources, you know, took a couple of actions that were necessary.
1: They have taken several times actions that were not only necessary, but essentially meant the shipment of... Uh, of weapons, uh, according to what was reported on Nahum Siegel's program.
0: <laughs> exactly. What do you think of this thing now, that, uh, that there was an actual effort this week, because of the uh, nuclear summit, to press Israel to get rid of its nuclear weapons? It, it, it's somewhat...
1: It's an annual. It, it happens, and, and unfortunately the Egyptians tend to take the lead on it, and did again this year. Uh, there is great concern that there, there could be a resolution. <clears throat> you know, they talk about a nuclear weapons-free Middle East, but it's it's targeting Israel, <clears throat> and I hope I hope that this will, and that the United States will assure that this does not happen.
0: But the timing is laughable. You know, it's one thing if they do it every year or how how regularly they do it, but now with the situation the way it is, who who would ever recommend to any democratic, peace-loving country to get rid of their nuclear weapons?
1: Well, this is the first year that Israel, in a long time, that Israel actually participated in an effort to offset it and uh was present at the discussions
0: Was that a mistake on their part? To
1: participate I don't think it would have changed the outcome.
0: So it doesn't matter. You know the pro- the former president of Israel on this we were speaking earlier about the um, uh, attitude of the President of the United States toward the new Israeli government, two states not two states etc. So today he made a statement that there's a. This is Shimon Peres. That there's a clear majority for a two-state solution among the citizens of Israel. Now that might ruffle some feathers, especially in this audience. But based on what you just said earlier, it's actually not a bad message to keep reiterating to the world that, as far as Israel and the Israelis are concerned, they're ready for this. It's just the other side that's not prepared.
1: We should shift the onus. Honest- to the other side and tell the truth. Israel has always been prepared to negotiate. You remember what Barack offered. You remember yeah. what Omert offered. You know all, all the Gaza engagement, all the things that happened, and that have always been one-sided. And then the pressure continues to be only on one side. He is not held to account for anything. His failure in Gaza—they have no presence. They. The corruption that that permeates the whole PA system. You know that the PA legislature this week passed a, a, a resolution saying that the Jews are not entitled to one inch of the land. So it's not about the territories in the West Bank and building and all of that. They say Israel has no right to exist, and the Jews have no right to a state. It's not only recognizing Jewish state. I don't believe we have a right to have, have a state. And. And yet, this is always overlooked, and he's always dismissed because he's better than the alternative. We don't know what the alternative is, and we don't know if he's better. In it. But what what is unfair is that the onus, no matter what, is continuously placed on Israel. Look at all the revelations about how many people are being uh, Palestinians from Gaza are being treated in Israeli hospitals that came out this week. The thousands of, uh, of, of people, the reports on the fighting about how Israel went to such great lengths not to hurt civilians. I mean, those things never get mentioned. The positive stories don't get told, and there are many, many positive stories. And yet the onus is always put, and they they jump, as we see now, the president jumping on Netanyahu's unfortunate comments, and and he has uh, self-described as unfortunate and said that, uh, you know, he assured Arab leaders, he assured the Arab parties that he didn't mean anything. In fact, his government, the Netanyahu government, has given more money to Israeli Arabs, more support, advancing women, advancing, doing training, education, other things than any government of Israel did. And yet, he still gets beaten up and only reminded about the, uh, uh about that, those two statements. All
0: right. Um, Malcolm, we got, uh, Rabbi Yudin coming up, a holiday of Shavuot, obviously, uh, some parade talk as well. So we're going to move on. Any final message before we wrap things up this week?
1: What enabled us to have Shavuot? Was that we stood as one people with one heart. Today we need Achdoth in the Jewish community. No matter what your views are, no matter what your opinions, and you can differ and you can criticize, but we got to remember that the only thing that we have is each other. The only one who can defeat the Jews is the Jews. The only one who can save the Jews are the Jews with the aid of a Kodesh and God is looking at us and saying, are you united? Do you understand how much you need one another? Look in London, they're going to have this massive demonstration, July 4th, that they're anticipating of neo-Nazis, real neo-Nazis in, uh, in uh, major Jewish neighborhoods, the rise of anti-Semitism, the global effort that, that we are encountering everywhere, including the United States. We really need to be together, and so much energy is wasted on fighting, internal fighting. It's got to stop. We have to stand together, recognize our differences, but recognize what we have in common, all rooted in our Torah.
0: Phenomenal. Have a wonderful Shabbos and a great yontif. There is Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. A week from today. It's a short week next week, obviously. uh, But nonetheless, we will uh, have our weekly update a week from today, 7.40, Friday morning. Make sure to be tuned in if you're around the world. It's 7.40 Eastern Time every single Friday morning.